welcome to episode 367 of Obsessive Sneaker Disorder. I'm Sean Williams, also known as Paper Chaser. I think I'm going to kill that name eventually, <laughs> but for now it fits everything that I do. But we are here live at the Port Authority bus terminal at the From the Feet Up exhibit, which is on the second floor and right down the hall from the Frames bowling alley. For those of you who are going to listen to this, if you catch it before it's over, then you know exactly where it is. If not, well, enjoy this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But my guest today is, and I'm going to let her introduce herself, she is an esteemed creative filmmaker and overall dope person. Would you like to introduce yourself to the people, please? Sure. So my name is Asha Boston from Bedside, Brooklyn. I'm a filmmaker and also a community activist. That's a lot. And how old are you? 27. That's a lot. The average 27-year-old is not doing that. Like, honestly. And, you know, today I believe was the day where a lot of high school kids actually walked out of school. For climate change. And protested and lifted their voices for climate change. So it's good to see that the youth of today are actually putting themselves on the line for something. I guess they realize if we can't have any electricity, then they can't power up their phones. (laughs) (laughs) But um, seriously, so thank you for being here. Thank you for having Um, me. I wanted you on OSD and my partner, D. Wells, who couldn't be here today, but you know, we really are into what you're you're about. Thank you. You are, we use a hashtag and we actually have an Instagram page called I Know Dope People. And you definitely qualify as one of those folks. Thank you. So what we want to do, and we want to have some fun doing it today, we want you to tell us all about your journey in terms of, you know, your activism, your filmmaking, mm-hmm. and... We're going to throw them the surprise, which is, you know, from the ankles down on you today. <laughs> Sorry, no visuals just yet, but we'll we'll be happy to let you guys know where you can find the visuals behind all of that that we're talking about. But let's jump right into it. Who's Asha Boston? So Asha Boston is a creative problem solver. Mm-hmm. I describe myself as a creative problem solver because I'm very, by nature, I'm very introverted and very observant. And so I've noticed a lot in my lifetime, and I always want to do good by my community, by my family. And so I just use my creativity to kind of solve societal issues that I feel like need to be challenged. When did that kick in? Because, you know, you said early in in the beginning, in the intro, you're 27. So usually stuff like that doesn't kick in on people till at least mid-30s, where they're, like, really gung-ho about it with, like, signing petitions and, like, protest signs and actually (laughs) walkouts and stuff you're 27 and like you didn't just wake up at 27 and do this like when when did this motivation and this way of life kick in for you like activism all of it um pretty early um so i feel like i started in the industry kind of early um when i was 16 i was really interested in journalism really interested in fashion and of course being from new york I mean, it could be a jungle gym of opportunity if you let it. And so I remember I was going to private school for high school. And in my art class, the girls would talk about their internships. And I had never heard of an internship before. I didn't know what it was. Mm. I didn't know what they were doing. But they talked so highly of themselves and the opportunity. I'm like, no, I got to have an opportunity, too. Mm -hmm. So I remember um, 
usually sometimes if it's nice outside, I'll get off the train two, three stops before my regular stop and just walk home. And so one day I got off the train at Franklin on the sea line and I was walking down Bedford and I saw a vintage boutique. And so I popped in and I asked them if they were looking for interns. And they're like, sure, bring your resume. And my resume didn't really have anything on it um, besides what I found on Google what you should say on a resume. <laughs> Thank you, Google. <laughs> Thanks, Google. Um, but they gave me a chance because they saw that I was passionate about fashion. And from that internship, they told me to subscribe to Teen Vogue and check out this opportunity that they had called the It Girls program. And so I immediately signed up for that. And that was like being an influencer before being an influencer was a thing. Wow. So I had a blog and I'd go to Teen Vogue events and like write about it, talk to the editors. And that really helped start my career at a very young age because I actually had some legit things on my resume now so I could apply to more opportunities. So by the time I was in college, I went to college in Atlanta, Agnes Scott. Mm -hmm. um, I was working part-time as a journalist and like by day going to class, by night going to like every industry event, talking to everybody all wow. the time. And by my senior year, I mean, I had a lot of fun doing it, but I felt like there was something more that I could be doing right. because I really am a storyteller at heart. And so, by chance, I ended up taking a film class, and that's when everything changed. And I'm like, oh, this is a new medium for me to tell very specific stories in a style, in a way that, you know, can resonate with people on a different level. And so... So, did you feel like what you were reporting on, it wasn't allowing you to really tell the full story, so it kept you yearning for wanting to tell the full story? Yeah, and it was a very interesting time in journalism. Um, it definitely wasn't what it is right now. I feel like now there's there's actual news. I feel like at the time when I was reporting, I was doing written reports, but I was also doing like on camera stuff. Right. Um, but I remember a site that I was writing for, they're like, yeah, people don't read. So, you know, just send in those articles, maybe like five sentences long about eyebrows. And I'm like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why does anybody care about this? You know, and I just I didn't feel fulfilled as a storyteller. And so I was really looking for something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally get that in. I, I could see it in what you do now, which, you know, we'll definitely get into that, but I could see in what you do now, like details of the story matter to you. Mm -hmm. So, so that kicked in when in your journalism role where you realize like, all right, this pen has to stop, but I really don't want it to. And I guess the fact that you, and even, you know, websites and publications realize people stop reading. Mm -hmm. They simply stopped. And then they started the matrix of paying you guys based on word count. Yeah just straight economizing and not caring about stories anymore. I had to bother you. I had to bother <laughs> you, right? Yeah. <clears throat> it was, I mean, it really, it made me so upset because I remember there was one site that I was writing for. It was really big and um, I remember we did like a conference call about stories that are doing great, that we should try to pitch more stories like, and they're like, okay, look at our top stories this month that have the most traffic and it's like, stuff people wear to Walmart and like a whole bunch of like ridiculous stuff and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to write about this. This doesn't mean anything. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't put anything back into anybody who reads it besides like a laugh. And I mean, right. we should laugh sometimes, you know, yeah. nothing's wrong with that, but I just felt like it wasn't the lane that I needed to be in at that time. So when you went to Agnes Scott, what was your major in? International relations. Ah, so yeah, you definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I care. <laughs> you definitely wanted more. Yeah. That, that was, that was for real right there. So Fast forward now to you finished film school, right? I didn't even go. 
or you I finished got rejected. You got rejected. Yes. Oh wait, wait, wait. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. It gets worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, it got better because I feel like I didn't need to go. Mm-hmm. I remember I applied. I was working. I came home and I was working in TV for a little bit, mm-hmm. and like I knew that. I wanted to get into film, but I also had like a nonprofit that was growing. But at the time, it was just an idea. It was like a community organization idea that I can do. Um, And I really wanted to try it, but I was working this job, so I didn't have the time. So to kind of like (laughs) satisfy my parents, but also feel like I had a plan, I'm like, okay, I'm going to quit the job and apply to film school. So I quit the job and applied to film school, and I didn't get in. And the very next day, I just kind of hit the ground running signed up for a business class, started learning about like all the mechanics of business and then started to build and um, build the community organization idea into an actual 501c3 nonprofit. Nice. You just like straight went ahead and did it. Yeah, you've got to. It takes a lot of courage to do that, especially at a young age, right? Yeah. Now, what were some of your friends saying who may or may not have been on the same path as you when you were going to do all of this? Um, They were really encouraging. I think they're always just amazed at at the amount of bravery. Um, So they're very, very supportive in all that it is that I'm doing. Um, I have two best friends from high school and a best friend from childhood and one from college that really keep me grounded in all of it. So Shout them out. Oh, yeah. Kavis, Nikita, Brittany, and Tabitha, they're like my, my core people, and they keep me very, very grounded. And so anytime I have a crazy idea, I tell them first. And once they're like, okay, this sounds like something that you would do. I'm not surprised. I'm like, okay, well, if you're not surprised, then I'm going to do it. Way to go, y'all. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> so you get the 501c3 off the ground, mm-hmm. and you're, you, you're rolling your sleeves up. Yeah. And, and, then, and what's some of your first projects you're working on when you launched the 501c3? Um, so the first thing that we did as an organization was have a dinner, because the organization is called The Dinner Table. So that stemmed from a film, actually. Um, my senior year of college, when I took that film class, my professor was really encouraging about me going out there and trying it. And so I remember with him, I kind of talked through this idea of creating a documentary about um, how women of color are portrayed in reality TV and the fact that at the dinner table, it always just goes very left. And I wanted to show something that was the opposite. And so I, I remember just kind of working on that and it was it was pretty you know it was a first time documentary so it was it was all right in terms of production value but the story was solid right. and it was solid enough for me to start talking to students it was like some of those hood web series we watched the writing's <laughs> good but <laughs> the production value no no don't judge us don't judge us <laughs> um but was what was really awesome about it is that the story was solid enough to resonate with students to say like I want to experience that dinner where I'm sitting down and talking to someone who's encouraging. And it was actually a criticism I got from a student once. And she was like, okay, this is, this is like cute, but this isn't my real life. And then something clicked, like this can be your real life. Mm -hmm. So once we got going um, with the nonprofit, then we started to plan actual dinners and what the first one I thought it was going to be like 60 people from my Facebook friends. It was 92 people. We were like, okay, Next dinner was 100, next dinner 150, and so now we kind of sit between like 100 and 150 like students that come through every time, and it's it's That's awesome. Thank you. It's awesome. That is really dope. So now when the dinners are going on, are you also, do you have your filmmaker hat on? Are you documenting? Are you 
There is documenting going on, but it's all students. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm very big on making sure that the ladder is sent back down for mm-hmm. people to come up. I mm-hmm. feel like because I came through the industry very early and people did that for me, I right. have to do my due diligence for others. So students are the ones behind the camera taking the direction. And I'm more so making sure all the logistics are in order. Do we have enough mac and cheese? Is there mm-hmm. toilet tissue in the bathroom? Like Lights! <laughs> Who's got the lights? Yeah. <laughs> all of that. I'm trying to make sure that like everything is okay and um i mean at the end of the night people like come to me with tears in their eyes saying they had a really good time or like they'll keep talking about it for weeks on end and so i'm like okay we've done we've done our job i think this is the first time i'm probably going to use this phrase you pay it forward before you even got paid (laughs) (laughs) that's real yeah i mean the age that you're at you are paying it forward before you've even reaped the ultimate rewards that you you rightfully deserve. Honestly, I mean, we we we're we're going to talk about a little bit of that too in terms of the filmmaker journey and where where we think that should go. But like straight up, just everything you just finished sharing with us, you pay it forward, and like nobody's reached back and gave you the big payday yet. So that's a lot of courage. That's a lot of bravery. That's a lot of vision. Um, and, and I, I, I know you sleep well at night. You gotta sleep well at night behind <laughs> doing stuff like that. But talk about now, I want to fast forward just a little bit. Cause I know it's going to, we're going to bring it back to, you know, again, the youthful days, mm-hmm. you're still youthful, but prior youthful days, talk about a time before kale. A time before kale. So that idea came to me, <clears throat> ironically, right after I quit <laughs> that job in television mm-hmm. i remember i was doing my laundry and i'm a huge lover of photography i studied photography and so jamel shabazz is one of my favorite photographers what up jamel love him and i had his book a time before crack sitting on my dresser and so i remember i just kind of stopped and i looked at it and i looked out my window and there's so much construction going on and i'm like man like i remember when he was talking about why he made the book um, and why he named it a time before crack is because he wanted to show that there was life and people and families in a community before the crack epidemic. And so I'm like, wouldn't it be nice to make something in homage of this book, to make something that shows that there were a community of people before the narrative that gentrification brings? And so a time before kale is a tribute to a time before crack by Jamel Shabazz. Yes, it is. But it's also making an awesome and very creative reference point to the pre-gentrification Brooklyn era. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. It's so like you you single-handedly created a time reference <laughs> that actually is is can be used every day. Like, oh that's 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 before kale, y'all. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's dope that you actually number one, you you actually with someone like Jamel Shabazz being somebody that you look to as far as one of our, you know, premier and chief documentarians of, you know, things that we love so much, not just hip hop, but everything else that, you know, society brings that people need to have candid images of. But how did your family feel about when you started a time before care? They were actually very excited um, because like, Ownership of property is very important to my family. We own the brownstone that we live in. And throughout the years, we've just seen a lot of people on our block 
for different reasons, you know, either have to sell the building or become displaced. And so they were excited that I wanted to tell a story about, you know, what was happening. My dad, my parents from Guyana, and so they moved onto the block in 87. And he always tells me, like, don't ever let anybody tell you that you can't own something as a black woman, because when we moved here, black women owned half this block, majority of the block. And so... You know, they were just very, very excited about the journey that I was going on. They were like, our little girl. <laughs> Not so little anymore. <laughs> so what has the journey been like? What What have you been seeing mm-hmm. just in your daily travel in terms of not just with your filmmaker hat on, mm-hmm. you know, your fashion hat, you walk in the streets, um, and just your Brooklyn hat, you know, your, your Brooklyn lens. What are you seeing just in terms of that? Like, without documenting anything, what's the vibe when you're walking through Brooklyn now? Now, it is, I don't feel seen mm-hmm. in my own neighborhood. Sometimes I feel lost in my own neighborhood um, because it's like everything that you knew isn't there anymore. I used to be able to walk down the block and not even make it home without saying hi to almost everybody that's outside. Now I can get to the edge of my block and walk home in complete silence. And that is that is so heavy to me. And it's part of what really fuels me to make this. Yeah, because you got to find those people that you can still do all of that with. Find yeah. those shops, find those businesses, find those people. And keep that documentarian you know, mindset behind one day you come home and it's gone. And you're like, okay, I'm glad I got that. Yeah. I'm glad I still have, you know... In my archives, I still have that, which, you know, again, time before kale. Time before kale. So let's talk sneakers. Okay. Because sneakers is what got you here. Very true. You're, you're on obsessive sneaker disorder because of a footwear project. So I, I would love for you to go into great detail about that because, like I told you before we started with, you know, the episode, the We Are Cultivated program was something that, you know, I have in strong consideration to hopefully work on something with them one day. And when I went through the list of people that were selected when I wasn't selected and came across you, I totally had to, like, shut up. I was like, shut the fuck up. She's dope. <laughs> and, I mean, no disrespect to anybody else that was selected, but you... And everything that you told in your story for your We Are Cultivator, you know, Nike project is the type of stuff where I was like, okay, I don't think I would have did better than that. (laughs) I simply said, I don't think I would have did better than that. She deserved that. So I can shut up on everything I was saying about not being part of that project this time. So give us, like, the entire mindset of going into applying for that and your total approach to the creative behind it. Yeah, well, I was I was actually very nervous because they were looking for New York stories. And I'm like, well, my New York story right now is gentrification. And it is such a slippery slope with people sometimes, you know, because yeah. it makes people uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about it. No one wants to feel guilty. Um, no one wants to explore what gentrification actually is. And no one wants to get defensive. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was really nervous, but I'm like, you know what, it's my truth and if that's what opens the door, then fine. And so I just kind of wrote about the fact that I'm telling the story about black neighborhoods and historically black neighborhoods. And when I got the email that I was selected, I was just like, Okay, this is cool. They're like, But you gotta wait until we like 
get you the shoe, we're selecting which pair you you get to design. Uh, hold on. So it was probably like two weeks of just kind of waiting around. And then I went on vacation with my family. And while I'm on vacation, I get the email to sign into the portal. And then I see that I have the Nike Air Max 270 React. And I'm just like, okay, cool. So I already had all these ideas in my mind about what I could do. I was like, oh, I'll make the brownstones. I'm going to make this. I'm going to make that. Right. And then I, I check like the colorway and it's like 15 colors that are super bright. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of so the, ideas so, so the color palettes that they gave you to use didn't fit anything you had Nothing. in mind while you were on Nothing. vacation plotting this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I had, I had whole concepts built up already. And so it's just like, okay, now I have to use something that's still going to make sense to the story that I want to tell. And so I remember just kind of taking some time to study the colors and think about what they make me feel. And I remember seeing like these shades of orange and I'm like, this kind of reminds me of the orange seats on the A train. And so I'm like, okay, maybe we could do something like an homage to the A train. And because I'm doing this documentary, like my knowledge, at least right now for Bed-Stuy is extensive like 16th century you extensive. Are, you off the charts with your knowledge of this time program. like I've, I've been to the department of records and we we went through like logs of like housing documents from like the 1700s so it's like insane and so as soon as i think of the a train i'm like okay the a train has this dope history from 1936 of connecting the black community in harlem to the black community in bedside and that's a story that is very in line with with what I'm talking about. So I'm like, okay, this is a good reason to kind of design it this way. And then I started like looking up the A train because I remember hearing something about the the orange seat car like going to be retired. But I'm like, is it true? And it is true. So the orange seat A train car, that model of the car is called the R46. Mm-hmm. That car is going to be retired like in the next two or three years yeah. for a new big no seat train car. And I'm like, it's kind of symbolic. Because there's also a new passenger riding from Harlem to Bedsty. That's right. There's a new passenger living in Harlem and Bedsty. New, new passenger indeed. New passenger, <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, and, and they eat kale. They, <laughs> <laughs> they do. They eat a lot of kale, you know. And and I just I felt like I needed to honor the story, and it went from being just a shoe to like a time capsule object. Like yeah. I had to make this to pay homage to my community, and so that's why. Um, especially on the upper, you see the different ranges of orange because I'm kind of playing with the orange on the seats mm-hmm. and the teal coming from the back. I mean, it was a little bit of an accident. I just, I, I was like, I did the first time around, I designed the entire thing, just different shades of orange. And I'm like, okay, this is cool, but this doesn't feel like New York. Like this needs mm-hmm. to feel like a Brooklyn Knight will put this on and be like, all right, I'm, I'm here. And you know, I'm here. Right. So that's where the teal came from. It just needed to feel fresh. Right. And then I started thinking about, it, I'm like, well, you know, it's kind of like when you're sitting on the A train and then like the map kind of is sitting right on top of the orange seats. Yeah. And it, it's like this smooth transition, transition. of colors. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. okay, well then this is dope. And then we get to like the heel counter and we get to the back and I'm like, okay, so I definitely want to rep the film because I love Spike Lee and I love how he's able to infuse what he does into apparel. And so ATVK for A Time Before Kale is on the back of one and then on the back of the other one is 718 because, I mean... Of course. Had to do it. Yep. That's that's amazing. That that is your your level of detail and you found the limitations in what you were planning to do and you just really crafted an entirely new... And even more easy to digest by everybody's story. Thank you. Um, I mean, the fact that 
you know, you took the history of Harlem and the history of Bed-Stuy and you tied it together through the A-Train, which, of course, you know, there's the famous jazz record. You know, um, when I saw the level of detail in everything that you documented and, you know, you're so masterfully explaining it here for the listeners, you know, once they see the visual now after, you know, hearing you explain it, it's an incredible piece of footwear. It's an incredible piece of footwear. Um, I'm disappointed in the fact that, and this is not you who's at fault here, it's only available for a limited time that you had to, you know, you had your couple of weeks where you had to buy them. And then after that, that was it. Cause it's such a significant story that I feel like maybe Nike should. And, you know, if we're cultivators still involved or not, I feel like it's a story that should be presented to folks at Nike. And it's the type of thing that should be like a black history month shoe that you should single-handedly be, in charge of making sure that that gets curated the right way and it's part of a Black History Month release. That's exactly what I felt from the story, from you breaking down every single detail just as you did from when I saw your campaign. Thank you. So, again, you're 27 years old. There's still so much more of this life for you to experience. But that level of detail in storytelling through there's people who are getting paid a lot of money to make sneakers who are not doing that level of detailed storytelling like is there an ambition to work for a footwear company or yeah. be in marketing for a footwear company or you know somehow some way be you know working and you know making a living in the footwear industry is is that there i mean it, it is um i have a deep love and <clears throat> level of respect for fashion that was like my first love before i found journalism and it was something that i shied away from because actually like you know when i was a kid um people were like okay this is cute but is this really possible for you and getting so many you know criticisms and questions about whether something is possible really deterred me from actually pursuing it and i don't regret my journalism experience and my tv experience i'm really glad that i did it but now to be in a space where it's like it's not just possible but it was possible with like one of the biggest brands ever it kind of like woke up that kid in me that that had all these dreams about doing things in fashion i'm like okay this is something that i definitely want to continue to do in addition to what I'm already doing, because there are people out there doing multiple things because they love it. Like I think about Rihanna and the fact that she has like 50 million brands and she loves each and every one of them and she's doing it because she can. So I'm like, well, I have the time, the resources and the opportunity and I live in the city. I might as well, you know, take and the youth, everything. <laughs> and the youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Age is on your side. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like I, I should just go for it and seeing what it does. Um, not just for me, but for my family and for even like the students that I work with and people in my community, you know, way older than me, you know, the old lady's like, this is exciting, you know, when I'm walking down the street and, and expressing how excited they are and how it makes them think of something they wanted to do. It's just mm -hmm. like, okay, I have to keep doing this. Well, you know, I want to say this. We're here at the From the Feet Up Sneakers Hip Hop in New York City exhibit. Unfortunately, your shoes weren't done before this exhibit was up. But if they were, they would have definitely been in here. And then I would have definitely had you, you know, panel discussion, you know, all, all that to, to feature the shoe and have that story told the way it was. Um, 
you should be in the footwear industry. I mean, either through your filmmaking or just through as proof, your level of storytelling with your shoe that you did. What other shoe do you wish you had the chance to do if it wasn't the one that We Are Cultivator had you work on? Mm. And I thought about this too, because like We Are Cultivator didn't tell us until we had the shoe what we were going to be doing. And so I had to like look through what they've done before to try to guesstimate what we would have been able to do. Right. And I remember seeing um, like the options that they had available when they did the harachas. And I was like, Oh, this is dope. Like you could do some really cool stuff with like what, what they gave the creators at that time. So I think if I could do something with those. Harachis. Yeah. Okay. Not even if what, with what they gave them at that time, but like something else, like I just think that the, everything about that would be really cool to me. So was it also your plan to, when you designed the shoe that you did use, did you picture it on men and women, or did you picture it on just women or just men? Who, who did you picture wearing the shoe? I pictured people that love where they're from wearing the shoe. That's so, like, artsy. But for real, that's really what I thought about. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, because, I, I mean, I thought about Brooklyn Nights first, mm-hmm. men and women, because I'm like, I mean, this is really who it's for. Um, but what's really cool to me is seeing, like, now people are starting to get their shoes because, again, we were on a two-week. Right. deadline so people are finally getting their shoes now and like even up to yesterday somebody from mississippi wrote me and they're like i love these these are my babies i resonate with this story even though i'm not from new york but i deal with gentrification here mm. it's like wow or like um something that kind of blew me away was a train conductor actually on the r46 a line got a pair and sent me pictures of him in them and I'm in his uniform and i'm like wow. this is crazy and then i got like anonymous pictures of like the shoes on on the train and i'm like this is wow i mean it's just been such a surreal experience seeing people receive them and tell their own stories with them of their own a time before kale that is insanely dope thank you that's insanely dope i mean to for people to just participate in the story now yeah. you created something where people have actually taken the 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 footwear and now they're participating in extending the story that's amazing that footwear companies, Nike included, I don't know how what they would have done to buy that kind of extension of the story. That just really doesn't happen these days. What you just described does not happen from multi-billion dollar footwear brands these days, where the consumer takes the shoe and continues the story along. It doesn't happen. I mean, I'm I'm just I'm just honored to to have been a part of the process. I I, I hope they're seeing this. I tag them and everything so they can continue to see it, um, because I think it's something I really you know as we expressed before want to continue to do. Yeah, you definitely should. You definitely should. And and see, here's you know I'm gonna ask a a tough one, mm-hmm. but this is OSD, so we don't do political correctness. We do. And you're from Brooklyn, so you know. <laughs> we do 100% real and raw. From 1 to 10, rate the job that you think footwear companies are doing in regard to the woman consumer. I would give it like a soft 6. A soft 6? Yeah. Okay. Why a soft 6? Because other people I've asked that have been 5 or below. 
Yeah. So you're a little bit generous, and that's you with the level of detail and storytelling that you look for in everything. So that's really a generous score. So why why a soft six? Um, because I think right after our drop ended, I saw that Reebok did like a a ladies only kind of drop thing. So I'm like, okay, so you know, some people are putting in some effort to try to put women in the seat of being the the designer here, but. I just hate that we're limited to pastel colors, <laughs> you know, all it's just like, how many times am I going to get a lilac, like, you know, or a pink, you know, why can't we, why can't we take it there? Why do I always have to like coordinate, like, okay, men's sizes, I'm a this, this, that, you know, even with the campaigns and the styling, I just feel like they could do so much better um, because women are so much more than the small box that we're put in. Right. Yeah. So a soft six. All right. So you, you, you skirted through that question. Maybe you made it past <laughs> that one. They're about to get tougher, though. Okay. Women in the executive and higher-level executive business ranks of the footwear companies. One to ten. It's like a three. Okay. Three, first of all, based on visibility. Can we see them? Do we know that? there can we can we hear them can we see them not just in the suite but in like the trickle down of what comes out to the consumer um i just think that it's it's a shame and it's really way past time and and it's way long overdue for women to have more positions of power um i feel like the most women that i see in the sneaker industry are like like influencers at least now are like influencers or like working something complementary to sneakers, but never like large and in charge. And the efforts that I do see are like designers, which is cool, but it's also like, I mean, we have to be up there to make decisions that kind of trickle down to the rest of us. That's a fact. That's a fact. All right. I think you did good on that one. You did real good on that one. Not that it was a test or anything. I mean, we just keeping it real here and I wanted to know what you thought about that. Um, you are very big on also historic, historic references. Yes. So with sneaker companies literally beating retros to death, (laughs) talk about historic references. Like we're constantly through sneakers being reminded of something, some cockamamie story being made in some color to remind you of some obscure memory. (laughs) How important is these days sneaker history versus sneakers future? Hmm. I think it's extremely important for a lot of reasons. Um, Because I work primarily with students and we're always talking about college and career opportunities and college and career readiness, they are in such consumer mindsets that they don't realize how easy it is to start something, to be inspired and to pick up what you have and just run with it. And I think something that's empowered me by learning sneaker history is how easy it was. I mean, not easy to get, you know, things off the ground, but how easy it was for someone to sit down and say like, Hmm, like rubber on the bottom of the shoe, you know, like, this this could be something. Tokenized rubber changed everything. I mean, you know, like how easy it was for, for, for two brothers to have two completely different visions about a sneaker company split up 
and run extremely successful brands. Like, yeah. I mean, that that, that like, being Puma and Adidas. Yeah, you know that that's 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 just crazy, man. And it's so it was so easy, you know, just to have an idea and have the audacity to believe in the idea so much that you wanted to make it happen. Yep. Um, and I remember I was talking to my students once about the Jordan brand, and we were talking about Jordan and Tinker, and for them that was like mind blowing because they hadn't even thought about how those sneakers came to be. And something about having that conversation and then having a conversation even to the side about ownership of content creation and things like that, a lot of them were like, oh, well, maybe there's something I can do. And I'm like, absolutely, it's something you can do. You know, so I think that that sneaker history is so much more than just knowing the facts of the shoe. It's knowing that you have ownership of yourself, you have ownership of your creativity, and you can use that to change the world. No more to be said on that. So where can we find Asha Boston? Yes. Um, I'm on social media um, for both A Time Before Kale and my personal page. So yep. A Time Before Kale is at A Time Before Kale. Kale is K-A-L-E, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> vegetable. Whatever. Not K-A-I-L. <laughs> you know, somebody actually told me the other day that um, kale has, like, a certain amount of pesticides in it, and too much kale can become poisonous, mm -hmm. and they were like, you should think about that in relation to documentaries. So I'm like, oh, that's crazy. Wait, wait, you, you, you might get a hit from the farmers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that one alone. But so, so, so on then, social media, you can find you at... Then you can find me at Asha, A-S-H-A-K-A-Y-B, and that's my personal for Twitter and Instagram, and also my website. So, last but not least. Yes. What's next for Miss Asha Boston? Um, well, definitely this film. We are working on wrapping up the pilot episode. Super excited to kind of finish it, package it, and put it out. So just keep your eye out on our social media for that. We're going to do a few events centered around the content that we're talking about in the film. So keep your eye out for that. Hopefully more things in fashion. I and mean, footwear. And footwear. Even if somebody doesn't find me, I will find a way to make it happen. And then for, for the nonprofit, I mean, we're always looking for volunteers and help. And we're always just trying to be a resource in the community. So, yep. so yeah. one more time, what's the name of the nonprofit? The Dinner Table Doc. We had to put Doc in there, so it's Google search. Okay. <laughs> Strategy. Strategy. Yeah. All right. So last but not least, what train are you taking home? The A. There you have it, everybody. Asha Boston. We are done with OSD episode number 367. Shout out to the homie Steve Austin and the good folks over at Healing Souls. Like, like we always say, keep your laces tied tight, your tongues loose, and walk good. <laughs>